can get our first slide up here. We are going to speak, we are going to cover a lot of scripture this morning. And you want that because you don't want to hear about me. You don't want to hear from me. You don't want to hear the words that I have to say. You want to hear that the words that God has to say. So we're going to allow the scripture to inform us this morning. We're going to go through that. And what I want to do is, is start with our scripture from last week. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will, become, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. This is a beautiful passage. This is the whole reason for the season. This is why we are setting out today to talk about what it means to worship the King. So today we're going to set out and we're going to seek a knowledge of God that converts head knowledge to heart knowledge. We're getting a little, you guys hearing a little reverb? Usually I like that when I do my rap routine, but I don't like that when I'm doing this. So. Um, we're, going to, we're going to seek to let God convert head knowledge into heart knowledge. Because what I want to propose to you today is that God desires and requires a specific heart and spiritual condition for us to restore the intimate presence Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And worship is the pattern, both the pattern and the vehicle to intimacy and victory in our life, which is to have a heart of worship. So we're going to look at that. We're going to unpack that. We're going to discover that. We're going to talk about seeking a heart of worship and ultimately the presence of God. Right? Does that sound like a fair plan? All right. Let's go through some scripture. I'm going to have to bring this up on my phone because I don't have it on my notes. Okay. So we're going to start our key scripture here this morning. We're going to start with the visit of the Magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I may worship him too. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it stood over the place where the child was. When, the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Hopefully, as I read that, you got this picture in your head of this story. We've read this story many, many times. Many, many times, right? We even co-joined this story with the story of 
the shepherds as they came to see the new baby uh, born, even though these two things are actually different in different time frames, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but we're very familiar with it. But what I do is I really want to break down this scripture and really see what this has to do, has to say to us, because this is what it's done to me. We, we tend to look at scripture sometimes and we get too familiar with it and we fail to see what God has for us in it. So let's unpack this a little bit at a time, starting in Matthew 2, 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born, again, this is after he was born. This is not when he's in the manger. This is after he was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the, te- in the days of Herod. The king, Magi from the east, arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Imagine you're in downtown Bernie, and you're walking around. It's maybe market days or something. And these guys show up with this entourage, and they're, they're all asking questions, going, Hey, you know, where is the, the, the child that was born king of the Jews? Where is he? We've come to worship him. And all the people are like, What are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? These men did not come to the palace. They came to Judea because the star was centered over Judea. They came to the center of Judea where they knew Herod's palace would be, and they started asking questions, right? What do we know about these men? Not a whole lot. There's not a lot said in here. There's some stuff in Psalms uh, or in uh, yeah Psalm 72 that references the king of Sheba and some of the others, and we can try to piece together who these gentlemen might have been. But what we do know about them is that they were uh, magi or kings, but they weren't Jews. We know that. We know they came. They were seekers. They came a really long way. They came from the east, and we don't know exactly how long that was, but we can, we can infer from uh, Herod's command to go and kill all of the babies that were around two years old or younger that this was a very lengthy journey. This isn't something that took place overnight. And so they traveled a long way, and they probably had an entourage with them. They probably had to sell quite a bit of what they had in order to, one, create the gifts and things that we're going to see in a little bit, but two, just to have the wherewithal and the means to be able to make this kind of a journey. This is not a simple go out for a stroll, right? We also know they were guided by divine revelation, right? They were not Jews, um, but for whatever reason, God decided that he wanted to reveal himself to him, and he did that through the star. And so they had this divine revelation, and they had a recognition a key, a recognition that, of who he was. And mostly they came with a purpose. Their purpose was for his presence and to worship. Let's see what happened going forward. Going into verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, we can understand why Herod might have been troubled about it. He was somewhat of an illegitimate king. He was placed there by Rome. He wasn't there by birth. And so the birth of a, a king of the Jews would be troubling to him from a power perspective. He also wasn't very well liked. But what about the all Jerusalem with him? What are they referring to when, when he refers to all Jerusalem with him? These were the Jewish leaders. These were the scribes and the chief priests that he, <clears throat> that he gathers together in the next verse, gathering together the chief priests and scribes. These would be the Pharisees and your Sadducees. 
These are religious leaders. Why were they troubled about the birth of the Messiah? Particularly when, when Herod goes to them and says, you know, where is Jesus or the Messiah to be born? And they were ready with the scripture. They knew Bethlehem. It's right out of Micah. We know that. We study that. These leaders read scripture daily. It was their responsibility. They had access to and studied all of the law, all of the prophecy, everything that they needed to know about God, but yet they were blind to what was happening in front of their very eyes. They must have been more interested in in retaining power and control of themselves and of the people. Why else would they have dismissed this coming and not even traveled the mere five miles between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. These guys traveled hundreds or thousands of miles. The Pharisees and the Sadducees traveled none. Could it be that maybe they had a head knowledge and they were driven more by their craving of attention from people than that of the presence of God? So it's easy for us oftentimes to focus, and I say us because I mean me, because I'm, I'm sharing a revelation that I have with you in hopes that it can be a revelation to you. I'm not preaching at you. I'm not teaching you. I'm just revealing to you what it is that God has revealed to me and has dealt with me on many a times. But it's easy for me to focus my time deeply on doctrine or tradition or other things, and we totally forget to seek the presence, and we miss it completely. Let's keep going. After... After hearing the king, they went on their way, and and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. And when they saw the the star, what did they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is like a double on double exclamation point. I mean, rejoice means to, to have a lot of joy, you know, and rejoicing with exceeding great joy is like saying, you know, holy, holy, holy. That didn't mean the angels in heaven aren't going holy. They don't stutter. There, there's no punctuation, so there's no exclamation point. And so really this is saying massive amount of joy that is being uh, exuded here. And this is just because the star has landed. The Magi's faith drove them to seek, and the reward of this obedience was great joy. Just the reward of the obedience was great joy. Let's take a look at where we see that. Let's prove that. Um, Keep going. One more. Psalms 119, joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's joy in searching for him with all your heart. There's joy in obedience to his commandments and abiding in his love. His joy becomes your joy. Let's keep going. That's a whole other topic for another day, right? (laughs) Moving on. So we're into 11 and 12. After coming into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. First thing they did, fell on the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't want to get into today all the differences or symbolism that the gold, frankincense, and myrrh all refer to, but just know that they offered themselves first as the sacrifice 
and then their treasures second. And, after, and then afterwards, having been warned by God, this is a, just another point that God was in this. So what do we know now about these men? These men didn't debate. They set out. These men did not find time. They abandoned all. These men were not deterred by any kind of resistance. Instead, they were overjoyed by obedience. These men did not seek for themselves but instead bow down in worship to the one who is worthy. There's nothing these men could have possibly hoped to obtain from an infant child. There had to be nothing that they were seeking. If that were the case, they would have gone straight to Herod's palace because Herod was the one in, in control. He was the one they could have created a treaty with or somehow other, otherwise seek to enrich themselves either in political power or otherwise. These men did not seek that. So what we see from this is, is it's not enough to know where Jesus was born as the priests and the scribes did if we don't go there. It's not enough to know that Jesus was born like Herod did if we don't encounter him. So why did God choose to reveal this truth in this brief encounter with the Magi? This is the only place we see this story is in Matthew. We don't see it in the other Gospels. Uh, there's only one other story about an interaction with someone beyond the family and Elizabeth and others that were, that were a part of that close family about the baby Jesus. We see the other story with the visitation of the angels to the shepherds that were uh, watching the night flock. And they were instructed to go and find the child and then go spread the good news. But in this case, why did God put this in here with these seemingly random individuals and give us an encounter that looks like this and tell us that they were there to worship? I think we need to investigate what worship means. <laughs> At least that's what I thought, right? So what does worship mean? The, the, the word for that, the Greek word for that in that particular scripture is uh, proskuneo, which means to express an attitude or gesture, one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Also, uh, you know, used as fall down in worship, do obsolescence to, prostrate oneself to, do reverence to, to welcome respectfully. Maybe we should take a look at where else this word is used and see what else we can discover about proskuneo uh, in Old Testament and New Testament as well. Let's take a look at that. Here's some examples. So in Exodus 3.12, we know this scripture, and he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Remember where this is from. So Moses is meeting with God. God is telling him, hey, I'm about to send you into Egypt. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. It's going to be great. It'll go really well for you. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic time, good time had by all. Um, yeah, no, but ultimately this was God's plan. God told him what his plan was. Worshiping this was not a suggestion, but it also reminds us that God did not rescue the Israelites for Egypt, from Egypt to bless them with a promised land, 
uh, milk and honey, you know, big palaces, lots of fun gifts and things like that. He brought them to establish his presence in their midst. That was the reason that they were extracted out of Egypt. He brought them out to worship, which is also within the commandments that he says in, uh, in 34.14, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. He's jealous for your attention, and he will not allow that to be shared. So how do I know that? Exodus 25, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. What is dwelling? That's the presence. That is his presence. God ultimately is wanting to restore the presence that was lost in the garden. And here we're seeing worship is the vehicle for that. This blew my mind. God wanted a way back into the presence to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. This is what he wanted for his people. This is why he pulled us out of Egypt. This is why he constructed worship. Wow, we've got to keep moving, right? We've got to see where this is going. So we've seen a couple examples that define it. What are some of the results that we can expect from worship when it's done? Remember in Matthew 15, we see the Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And there was some back and forth about, you know, I've come for the sons of Israel. Um, you know, and the disciples are trying to usher her away. But she came and began and bowed down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And then he says something about scraps of the table. And she said, even the dogs get to eat from the scraps of the table of the master. And he says, O woman, your faith is great, as shall be done as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So here's an example of a girl with demon possession being healed simply through the act of worship or bowing down, our proskuneo. Let's look at some more. In Matthew 8, we see a leper came to him, bowed down before him, and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately he was cleansed. So we have a leper made clean. In Matthew 9, 18, he says, while he was still saying these things to them, a synagogue official, at least it was Jaria, Jarius, I believe that's his name. I'm thinking about the chosen. I can see the guy's face because <laughs> I believe everything I see on TV, right? Um, I can see Jarius, you know, coming in and he says, uh, he, he bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And he did. And she did. This is amazing results that we see from worship. Take a look at this one. This one's a little, little more interesting. We need to unpack this a little deeper. So in Luke 17, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to him, Go and show yourselves to the priest as they were going. And as they were going, as they turned in obedience... As they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, 
turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. What do we see here? We see that a Samaritan, who was a, for, uh, a foreigner, a mixed, mixed blood, uh, you know, happened to be walking with fellow Jews. Um, and he's the only one. He wasn't versed in the, in the ways of worship like the Jews were. They knew exactly what the process was. But yet he was the one that returned to give praise where praise was due. The others either forgot or they refused. But they knew. Nine lepers were cleansed. They were made clean and they were free from defilement. But one leper was made whole. And that word within that is sozos. This is, this is a, a whole cleansing. This to save, to rescue, to heal completely. Restoration of the soul and body. We can believe that that led to salvation of that man because of his worship act. We don't know about the other nine. The other nine were more concerned about getting their reward before giving their praise. Their reward was to get to the priest to get their clean bill of health so that they could get back into the community that they wanted to be, that they were ostracized from. That was their overarching desire and their plan and what they wanted to do before giving praise and glory to where it belonged. The key was returning. Glorifying God with a loud voice. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Let's look at another example of where it doesn't work. We've seen this. Jesus is in the desert. He's starting his, his ministry. The devil is tempting him, and he says to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me. I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him straight out of uh, Scripture, out of Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So I use this Scripture because... I mean, it's obvious, but it's not obvious. We have to be careful, and I say the royal we, I have to be careful uh, of other things vying for my attention. Our worship is going to be directed at something. It can seem funny to say, hey, you know, that, that guy worships money or fame or family or vocation. But they can be idols, and you worship idols, right? You see in the tie here? God wants no other idols because he's jealous for our attention. So anything that is drawing our attention away from him, particularly in the course of worship, is another idol. And we should respond immediately to those thoughts and things. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart and serve him only. So we get distractions during praise and worship. My mind oftentimes wonders. I start solving work issues. I start scheduling important meetings. I start planning vacations. Uh, I start paying bills. 
I start worrying about paying bills. Uh, I start setting new health goals. Um, all of this while I should be focused on God. Let's move on. So Mark 7. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it's written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Could this be maybe why the Pharisees and Sadducees were blind to the birth of the king? Maybe why they were blind to all the miracles that were being performed in their midst during his ministry? These very same ones that refused to go investigate the childbirth are the same ones that were constantly peppering and, and harassing Jesus throughout his ministry. Looking at this, if there's a possibility to worship in vain, then there must be a heart condition required for worship. At Jesus' birth and during his ministry, the hearts of the people were far from God. They had a lot of head knowledge, but their traditions had become rote. They were going through the motions. And we see this when, when John was born and John's message in the wilderness, and his message was to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. The kingdom of the Lord is at hand. And as we heard so eloquently put last week, that is the gospel. The kingdom of the Lord is the gospel. And so this was the situation. They were more interested in pursuing their ministry and power than they were in seeking the Messiah. So if there's a heart condition required in it, I think we need to look for true worship. What does that look like? Let's talk about the woman at the well. A lot of us know this story, right? I'm going to paraphrase the first part of it, and then we're going to get to the end of it. So Jesus knew the time and place this woman would arrive. He and his disciples are, are on their way, and they stop. And he's like, I'm going to stop here. You guys go into town, get some supplies, do what you need to do. I'm going to hang out here. They were like, okay, master, and they took off and went into town. And so he's just sitting there at this well in the middle of the day when no one comes to draw. But the Samaritan woman came to draw. She came to draw water, and he asked her for a drink. And then he proceeds to tell her that if uh, she knew who he was, that she would ask him for a drink and that he would give her a drink, but it would be living water, and she'd never be thirsty again. And proceeds to go through this process and inform her. And he says to her, go and get your husband. She's like, I have no husband. And he's like, rightly said, you have no husband because you've had five or six or ten or something of that. And basically he's reading her mail, right? And so she picks up on that. She was obviously hungry. She was obviously seeking. He picks up on it and he leads her to salvation. He's, she says, I see that you are a prophet. She recognizes his Messiahship. And she has faith. Let's pick it up in verse 20. The first thing she asks him is, how do I worship? How do I worship you, Lord? How do I worship? I know that our fathers worshiped in, in this mountain, which is probably Mount uh, Gerizim. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. 
So she's like, how do I do that? How do I worship, Lord, if I'm not included in the country club that is Jerusalem and the temple and all of that? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship for what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Wow. There's a lot going on here. And so Jesus has just laid out a change, a complete and utter change of the Jewish traditions of worship and replaced it with a completely new way of worship, a true heart of worship. So in order to really understand the nature of this change, we need to go through and understand a couple of other things. One, what is the origin of this in Jerusalem piece of it? Because we're New Testament people, we're far from Solomon's temple, and Quite frankly, sometimes reading the Old Testament gets kind of boring, right? And we want to read the New Testament. We want to talk about all the new things that the Acts Church is doing, and we want to be a part of that. But sometimes we have to go back and we're informed because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and we have to understand these things. So we're going to have to go back and understand what it means to worship in Jerusalem. And we also need to understand how to praise and worship properly. So let's start with that. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, capital, (laughs) all caps, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his uh, mighty expanse, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with harp and lyre, praise him with timbre and dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and pipes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay. What is the word for praise in this? The word is halal. What does halal mean? It means to shine, to make a show of, or to boast, to clamorously, foolishly, to rave. Okay. Imagine you're at, for me maybe a University of Georgia football game. And I'm in the stands with my, with my best friends and everything, and they score a touchdown. And then you get this really stupid and goofy look on their face, like, yeah! Yeah, and you're high-fiving everybody around and all of that, like you just scored the touchdown. That's what halal means. Did I look foolish in that? Oh, yeah. Did I care? Not in that moment, I didn't. Why do we care? If we praise and magnify God the way he's prescribed it, why do we care what other people think? We certainly don't care at a football game. I'd say a Spurs game, but there's not much to cheer about right now. (laughs) I'm preaching to myself. Halal is to do it like you mean it. It's impossible to sit quietly and praise the Lord correctly. Ouch. Ouch. The truth is, is the enemy wants to rob you of this, right? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
He will steal whatever blessing he can possibly steal. And if he can convince you that during praise and worship and entering in, that if you look stupid, other people are going to judge you and you should be quiet and reverent. He just bought you. He just got you. I want you to remember that because I remember that. I put that in my head. I'm like, ha ha, I know I can't dance Satan, but take that. Right? That's the way you need to think about it. That's halal. It's a lie. Think about David. Uh, we won't go there. David danced in front of the ark. It didn't work out well for his wife when she judged him for that. Okay. Second Chronicles. Let's look at the temple. This is what happens in the temple. This is the scripture that we have from uh, Solomon as Solomon is commissioning the temple after he's just built it. Let's unpack this. Second Chronicles 5.11. And when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to the visions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthum, and sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres, standing in the east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. Next. Keep going. They're over there halaling. <laughs> in unison, in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify, praise halal and glorify Yada, the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, instruments, and music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting, then the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled this house. Is that not what we want? Is that not what we desire? That is the manifest presence of God. If praise and worship resulted in this, I want to know what this kind of praise means. Right? Let's unpack what happened in that. So this was the pattern for Old Testament worship. This is what many, 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 many scriptures um, in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all unpack um, what they were supposed to do. But starting with Psalm 100, they were to enter the gates with thanksgiving in their courts of praise and to give thanks to him and bless his name. So looking at this from kind of a, a bullet list or a numerical list of the things that they did. They started with songs of thanksgiving and praise. Um, these were called the songs of ascent. You typically find those in Psalms 120 through 134. Um, if you read the, the bulletin, if you didn't, um, shame on you. If you read the, the, the email blast, um, Psalm 24 was listed in that, and that was absolutely beautiful. It was an amazing psalm. Uh, and so I've included that here as well because those psalms, they were intended to prepare the hearts of the Israelites. They would leave their homes. They would leave their problems, their troubles, whatever they were worried about. They left that behind because these psalms of ascent were all around praising God, being thankful for what he had done in their lives and what, they, what he would do in their lives or who he is. And so when they get there, Sacrifices were offered for the sins of the nation. 
these were animal sacrifices. They were done for the atonement of sin for the whole nation by the priest. And the priest would enter God's presence through the Holy of Holies, separated by the veil, done one time per year to sprinkle the blood of the animal on the mercy seat. Um, and the Holy of Holies is where God was, had taken up presence. And they would also sing psalms of praise that were lifted up by their voice, and then the presence of God filled the house. Okay, so we see this as a pattern. This is a pattern for, for worship. It's an Old Testament pattern. It's based on the temple. And it's also based on the priesthood that was established at that time. What does 1 Peter 2.5 say about us? You also, as living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Revelation 1, 6, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are priests. Forget the fivefold ministry. There's people that operate in the fivefold ministry in different you know, areas and ministry, but we are all, all kings and priests which means we are all called to perform the same level of worship and service. Worship also means service unto the Lord as priests. The benefit of that is we don't have to have a priest do that on our behalf. The Israelites only got an opportunity to do this several times a year, and only then the priests were the ones that were able to experience the presence of God. We're a royal priesthood. The veil has been torn we have access to the throne room, and you are called to proclaim his excellencies. So we're going to have a visual aid. Everybody likes visual aids. Hopefully you can somewhat see this. This is a diagram or a drawing of Solomon's temple. And no, I'm not old enough to have dug that out of my own uh, archives. Um, but uh, we need to look at, at the temple that David's son Solomon built because it will inform us of some things. The temple was placed on top of Mount Moriah, and it was oriented from east to west. There's only one way in. What's the significance of being oriented from east to west? Well, if you remember in the garden when God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, they were expelled towards the east. The cherubim were set up with the flaming sword so that they could not re-enter the garden. The temple was instructed to be set up in an east-to-west fashion so that as they journeyed westward towards the temple in their ascent and entered into it, they were again repeating the steps of getting back into the presence of God represented by Eden. That makes sense? You following me? This was set up. The process of worship is symbolic of the process of returning to the presence of God in Eden. Amazing. Adam and Eden were forced to leave the garden. We see that. It's a type and shadow. Um, 
starting out with those gates, you see the outer gates, the sets of steps that walk into that. By the time the, the, um, the Israelites had made their way uh, to that point, they had prepared their hearts. They had been singing their songs of ascent. They had gotten themselves to a heart of gratitude uh, to a point where they were you know, praising him for what he had done in their lives. And so he was, they were clearly able to enter the gates. Once they got into that inner court, you see the altar of sacrifice. And that's the brazen altar. And that's where the spotless lamb was offered by the priest. We're to present ourselves today as a living sacrifice, right? We call that the, the sacrifice of praise. Praising God even when we don't feel like it. Praising God even when our answer has not yet been manifested. Praising Him even in the midst of our storm. That is the sacrifice of praise. So rather than sacrificing an animal on the altar for the, uh, for the atonement of sins, Jesus has already cleared the way for that. We are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Where do we see that? Obviously Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren... By mercy of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the brazen altar is an opportunity for us to offer that praise as sacrifice, to praise when we don't feel like it. I love Brandon Lake's version of praise you anywhere, yeah. praising from the prison, <laughs> praising when it doesn't make sense. Uh, that is a sacrifice of praise. The next thing you see in there is you see the bronze labors. Those are large bowls of water, okay, and they have mirrors in the bottom. And these were used by the priests as they would go in, and after offering the, the, uh, the sacrifice on the altar, they would use these to wash their hands and really any other part of their body that might have blood <laughs> you know, on them from offering that sacrifice. And there's a mirror in the bottom of it. The mirror was enabled them to kind of, you know, check their appearance and check their look, make sure that the hair was all good before they were ready to go into uh, the holy place. They really had to, you know, like, because when that was set up within the law, uh, if they did not cleanse themselves in this way, and what they were saying, sanctify themselves and through this process, and they entered into the holy place, not just the holy holies, the holy place, they would die. And it's another one of those threats, you'll die if you don't do this right, uh, to the Old, Old Testament. So what does that tell us today? We allow the Word to wash and sanctify us in service to the Lord. Repentance and acceptance of His forgiveness and love are required for service in the holy place. So that's our part in this. Where do I see that? We, taught, we studied this in Bible study. There's another reason you need to come to Bible study, because you get tips like this. Ephesians 5, 25 through 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This is washing of the water with the word is what's happening symbolically as we use that bronze labor in moving into it. 
Inside the holy place, you've got the lampstands and the showbread. The lampstands provided the only light in the room, and the bread was broken and eaten by the priest in their service. For us, the bread is the Word, the Word of God. And the lamps are the Holy Spirit illuminating, illuminating the Word in our lives. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no revelation and no ability to worship God in spirit. The Spirit leads us into all truth. Right? So when we study the Word, when we praise and worship using Scripture, as we so often do, what an amazing praise and worship set that was. As we sing those songs of, that are grounded in the Word, we are allowing that to wash us. As we allow the goodness of God to overflow us and we repent in the midst of that and lay ourselves out, then we are allowing that water to wash. It's an amazing process. The last thing they encountered before the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. And so the priests, they would burn incense at the altar to provide a sweet fragrance to the veil that separated them and to their priestly garments um, and hopes that that would transcend to the throne room. For us, our pure and loving worship, led by the Holy Spirit, is a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This gets us to a point where we are completely sold out to the presence of the Lord. The Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of the Lord was dwelling continually in temple time. So God said, I'll set up my presence and I will dwell. You know, above the ark you had the cherubim, and God would manifest his presence in a cloud over the ark of the covenant. But the Holy of Holies was separated continually by the veil in our state of our sin. But that's no longer the case. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, the A part, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. God wants to change the location of worship from the temple in Solomon's day and the Holy of Holies of His presence dwelling to your heart as you are transformed in the body, as the body as a temple to the Holy Spirit. Let's recap. We have to seek the King with a purpose. You need to begin your heart preparation by singing songs of thankfulness and praise for what He's done in your life. Use your whole body. Halal. In lifting up your voice to Him, dancing, foolishness, boasting. Praise Him even when you don't feel like it. Worship Him for who He is because He is worthy. And God's people must give one another permission to do this. 
We can't hinder others. We need to help each other lift up our voice and dance. And anything else that they want to do as a response to the Lord, don't allow the enemy to steal our joy. Family, we seek the Shekinah glory to manifest in our presence when we worship. In His presence, glory and miracles occur. We see chains broken, fear is dispelled, joy abounds, plans and purposes are hatched. Where are you going to get the closest opportunity to hear the voice of God than when you stand face to face? You can ask all the questions you want running around out in the pasture lands. Do you think he will hear you? You can come to the gate and try to make your petition known at a gate. Do you think he will hear you? If you're standing face to face, do you think he will hear you? If you curl up in his lap like a child in the lap of a father, he won't have to hear you. He just knows. He just knows. So my point today was that we have to change the state of our heart to have a heart of worship. And if we can do that, we see miracles. We see transformations. We see lives restored. We see so many amazing things. And we see the presence of God manifest in our presence. And that is a place that I want to be. And so I'm thankful.